Well, hi, Sonia. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for coming on again. It's uh, it's always nice to have people coming back on uh, again, expanding on their recovery journeys. And um, we've been doing a trying to do. Oh, again, it's been in my mind anyway to do a little series sort of called the Bridge, and sort of just focusing on you know the bridge like in the in the, in the AA twelve step. Uh, program book it says the bridge to normal living and uh, you sort of realize over my journey that you know when you stop drinking and and stop taking drugs you kind of realize you're still a little bit mental and you can have a lot of emotional and mental disorders and phobias and fears and all kinds of stuff going on that's got to kind of be be dealt with and you know it can make that bridge and that journey into recovery and ongoing recovery can be can be quite a difficult process it's not like a an easy task and I'm always surprised you know even like working in addiction treatment for all the years that I have that, that actually anybody makes it because it is uh and, and just watching people do their journey and again of course you're somebody that I've watched journey from the beginning and seen all the struggles and difficulties that you've had to to go through but you you made it and uh, so we sort of just wanted to sort of talk about that but I think it'd be good to start with um, how many years you got now in recovery? So I've, my last um, recovery birthday was in October last year and that was my 16th year so I'm into my 17th year now and which is a miracle. It's a miracle <laughs> and so I guess it's like from that point is is maybe giving a bit of background on sort of uh, sort of where you come from and and then maybe like what uh, what difficulties you were having before you actually entered into recovery like how sort of far down the scale did you kind of go with it and what was kind of happening for you? Uh, I'll land over to you for a little while. I might just jump in and up ask some questions I mean I know uh, a lot about you but other people don't so uh, if I'm asking you questions you know I already know but it's for that reason okay so um, as as far as my addiction as far as my addiction when um, I uh, I think I probably started using substances when I was about 16 um, and uh, it escalated very quickly. By the time I was 20, um, 20, 21, I was using cocaine and um, heroin. And um, uh, crack, heroin and crack, 20, 20, between 20 and 22. And, just uh, an interesting thing, sorry, I, about it so quickly, just because again, is that starting? So what, what is it that made you, what was it that sort of introduced you to, to using? So, although my family, um, although my mum, my mum was an alcoholic, but she didn't bring me up. Um, she, my mum lived in Finland, and I was brought up by my dad. And although there was dysfunction and there was lots of stuff going on in my family, uh, which caused me to have quite a lot of trauma, there was no uh, at that point in my life that I wasn't exposed to any drug taking, any criminality that I was aware of. Um, or any drinking. My dad used to drink probably once a year or twice a year at Christmas. 
But um, at 15, 16, I was attracted to and couldn't wait to get close to and be near and be involved with all the skinheads that were glue sniffing at the time. That was in the early 80s. So although there was uh, lots of dysfunction and stuff in my family at that point, alcohol and drugs, there was nothing. I'd never experienced it. And... um, so I don't know why I ever was attracted to that kind of the darkness. I just wanted to go and feel feel part of something, belong in something. I think because I never kind of felt, I never, I never felt, I never felt right. I never mm. felt like, yeah, I never felt right. I think due to being a band, uh, my mum kind of went off with someone else when I was seven, when we lived in Finland, and. Uh, my dad brought me and my sister back over here, and uh, and I think that I never realised at that point the damage that that done to me, the, the the traumatic experience of what 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 I experienced. I didn't really realise it until I was in recovery. Looking back now, I can see what happened and I could feel what happened, but at that point, I never understood kind of what why. Am I like this? I mean, because there's two things going on. You, you know, what I've learned in my recovery as I've, um, when, when I first got clean in the first couple of years, I remember you saying to me, "You've got two issues going on there. You've got, you've got all your your, your childhood experiences plus you've got the addiction." And uh, and I think that was a really really helpful thing that I learned when I was first first getting clean is that addiction's one thing and the trauma is another thing. So there was two, you know, there was two things that needed to be dealt with there. Mm. I mean, the, the the trauma stuff can you can kind of start looking at that as you're going through the steps and um, opening up and having a little look to see what's going on. But the, the addiction is one thing and the trauma is another thing. So I think that was a big learning <clears throat> curve for me. So I think the dysfunction and and relationship issues is a real gateway for a lot of people. Because again, I think there's that re, you know, like we're talking to Kelly and other people that, you know, people go, oh, well, I started drinking because, you know, I got abused or parents left. It's like, well, that's not why you started drinking. You started drinking because everybody drank and you had a drink and you liked it, but you didn't think, oh, I feel less than. I need to go and have a, a beer and snort some coke. That that sort of come along, but so. So just asking, trying to highlight that bit really, that you've, you said you kind of like, um, no real sort of desire to get drunk or use drugs, but the desire was to be a part of this skinheads and this group of of people. What was it that was attracting you to them, do you think? So I think it was just why, I think they just done what they wanted. They were a bit probably rebellious, bit... A bit of anarchy in there, and I think um, I think that's probably what I was attracted to, and no one bothered them. And I think a lot of a lot of it for me as well. I just wanted to get away from the home. Was you was, um, was you was you rebellious, or did you sort of was you just sort of becoming rebellious? Just becoming rebellious, yeah. I think when I when I was sixteen, I first started to get rebellious. Yeah. I just yeah. I, I used to lie to my dad. I was. I was brought up in a very strict household. I wasn't, and uh, I wasn't allowed to go out like my friends were when you're 15, 16. They, they kind of all 
they was all going out, they had boyfriends and uh, but I couldn't, I was nowhere near at that point when I was that age and uh, I just didn't have the capacity to be able to kind of form them natural relationships and uh, I, I just wanted to go out and rebel and, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to go and rebel and just really say fuck you to everybody. So that was like a, they looked like a bit of freedom then. Yeah, yeah, I felt free, and uh, I, I remember when I first left home, I, I had my hair shaved at the sides, I dyed it blue. Um, yeah, extremely rebellious, and it really, really, it was that kind of um, Sex Pistols kind of yeah. anarchy, definitely, so, so from a very young age. And you left home then as well? I left home around this time, I left home at 16, and uh, because my dad wouldn't let me go to a party, the skinhead party that was on, and um, he wouldn't let me go. And um, I just decided one afternoon, I said, I'm leaving. And I, I said, I'm going. I packed my stuff and I, and I went. And I was go gone into the yard. I didn't even have anywhere to go. I just went and stayed with a friend for a little while. And... Um, I think I stayed there for a few weeks, and then I ended up in uh, the, the gloomy kind of York Road area of South End, which is notorious for drugs, and uh, the red light area. It, it was real bedsit land. Everyone was unemployed, and and I I felt a sense of freedom from that. I I felt like I've kind of belonged, and um, it just made me feel really happy being amongst them people. Yeah. But I've never, never, ever experienced anything like that in my life. Yeah, that's not an uncommon kind of feeling that people, they sort of look for mm. that kind of group of people and it, it makes them feel like they fit in. Like you feel that acceptance. Mm. That you probably I, I feel. was accepted, yeah. Definitely, yeah. And so, sort of what, how did that develop for you? So that kind of that kind of went from that. So that started me off on the um, benefit life. I think I might, might have been the only person in my family that had ever claimed benefits. Um, I started claiming benefits. So I had a bed sit in York Road. I think for a time I was a lot of it. I've got to be honest, is a bit of a haze. I can't remember. I can't remember lots of it. I remember sleeping in my. I can't remember why and how, but I remember sleeping in my brother's mum's car for a, for a period when I was in my teens. Um, my, that was my dad's second wife, who he'd also separated from. I remember sleeping in her car for some time, and uh, and I think that yeah, I, I can't. A lot of it's a haze, and I yeah. So it was a bedsit land really, um, and that's when started smoking weed so started you you going didn't, out you didn't drinking. really have a plan on you weren't like trying to think of a career or job or you were just sort of all right being an adult doing never 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 had any dreams never had any aspirations i didn't have any zest to do good i didn't have any any plans of any education i just for some reason i just switched off from my whole family and um I just went underground, literally went, I went underground for years, years in this dark kind of abyss of um, York Road in Southend. 
the, but, but you weren't the, where the drug culture was, the criminal. No. Yeah. No. No, I felt happy. I felt I felt like I belonged. I felt like um, I, I felt like just navigating my way through life. There were periods. There were periods. Of, I remember there's a split second moment that I always uh, I seem to remember. Um, I remember walking down South End Seafront one day, and uh, and I remember thinking that surely someone is going to come and help me. Surely someone's going to pick me up and come and help me. I, I felt there were periods where I felt so lost and so kind of alone um, in amongst all that. But that I think that became a normality for me. So it didn't feel like there was a problem. That just became like a normality for me. What would you say then? You kind of felt like you thought like someone to rescue you. Yeah, definitely. What, what, felt what? like some. Would you think like your dad or someone? Sorry, come and, do you think your dad should have come and got you or? Absolutely, yeah. I, I just I never understand. I never kind of understand. I mean, my dad's very ill now. He's got Alzheimer's. Uh, dementia, uh, so he's very, very unwell living in Spain, and uh, um, I, I just, as a, as a mother now myself, uh, I've got a 28 year old daughter. Uh, I could never understand how someone who's not using drugs or drinking, and someone that's supposedly in their right mind, who would let their daughter leave home at 16 and not go and find them. Or not, not try and make any kind of connection, or um, see what's going on, or find out what's going on. But would you say? I, I, I just again, never understand it. Because again, I guess you're sort of saying, sort of thinking about the fact that you was looking for somewhere to join in, and you just shut off mm. from your family. That would say, did you didn't probably feel loved? Uh, you didn't feel loved by no. your family or your parents. Definitely, there, there were some of my family members, like my auntie and my cousin. There were some, and my nan who passed away some years ago when I was in prison. I did feel really loved by them, um, but I definitely didn't. I think that the my mum, my mum when she left us in Finland, and my dad brought us over here. I think that had such a massive negative impact on my the rest of my life and I guess it's still having that impact today although I'm getting better from it that had such a neg negative impact on me um I, yeah I just I think it just rocked my soul so you're like, you it never, kind of you broke never, me I guess never a little bit recovered from that no and then for years like because she left my dad and my dad was heartbroken um I don't think my dad ever understood really what went on. Um, my dad used to say things like this to me, your mum didn't love you anyway, your mum never loved you. And when I'd kind of, when I was younger, trying to make contact with her. Um, and uh, so that kind of reinforced that, because how I perceive that is that I'm unlovable. I never perceived that to be like, there's something wrong with her, she, it's her issue. Uh, and it wasn't a reflection on me. I just, I just perceived that as actually, Sonia, you're unlovable, and that's a, 
that's a catastrophic thing for a child to start experiencing when they're so young mm. from their mum. Yeah. And I guess you went, you know, that kind of played out, I guess, sort of being unlovable eventually, then you, you started sort of playing that out and become a little bit more unlovable. You're not, you're not, you weren't really doing yeah, anything well, to be lovable. <laughs> well, the thing I've, the thing I've learned is since since being clean is that when parents neglect or abuse you, and you're a child, the child doesn't start to neglect and abuse the parent. The child starts to neglect and abuse themselves. So mm. that's definitely when I heard that when someone said that to me, I said, "Oh my God, I can totally relate to it." I, so rather than me thinking my mum's very selfish and she's kind of hasn't had a great upbringing herself. So what she's doing is a reflection on her. I took it as it was a reflection on me for, for all my life. Mm. But now I can kind of see because I kind of made, I made the peace with my mum before she passed away in 2018. And I know that now I know in my heart, which was very important to me is that my mum loved me with all her heart. She just didn't have, it to give me what I needed as a child. Mm. And also her relationship with my dad was very strained and she couldn't bear to live with him anymore. Yeah. So, um, so, so now you live in sort of in pretty rough part of South End and I guess it's just getting a bit worse for you. Do you, you want to explain yeah, some of that? I, my, just... I, so in, in the... Um, I think it was mid-80s to the late 80s, I started, um, late 80s, I'd say, I started getting into the criminal side. Obviously, I'd started signing on, I never worked, started claiming benefits and living in the uh, bedsit land, and um, all the criminal activities started. So although the heroin and crack didn't come along until a couple of years later, I was already going out, drinking every day, um, smoking weed, doing a bit of speed, doing a bit of cocaine if we had the money to do it. So we were going out shoplifting. I think one of my first um, arrests were in 1987. I got arrested for a bit of fraud. Uh, I think we were working, me and my friend were working some checkbooks. And uh, my criminal life just kind of escalated from that point. Um, shoplifting and, and um, drug running and I just didn't know anything else. It feels like it felt like everything I'd learned back at home, all that normality, all the normal became abnormal, and all the abnormal became normal for me very quickly. Yeah, and how old would you have been about then? Um, late teens, late nineteen, nineteen twenty. So you you sort of 19... got a few years. You're a few years got to know everybody. I guess yeah. was, it, was it in South End, and was there like a lot of was there sort of a lot of people behaving that way, and is a lot of gang or groups? It wasn't really a gang. There was I was just groups of people. I think there weren't such things as gangs really at that point. Um, I think that um, the skinhead kind of era died down, and then I started hanging around down the seafront, which was quite close to York Road, and uh, there was a few kind of people down there that really looked after me um uh, the old seafront well-known people down there that there's they 
I think I worked in a little um, hot dog stall making burgers and hot dogs for a little while on the side of, um, as well as um, signing on. So we was just we just lived to go, to go out and drink and committing different sorts of crime. That was it. So that was all my life consisted of. So it's like a bit of a sort of a culture. Uh, down yes, there definitely. Of, yeah. Seafront culture, yeah. All right. In then. the late 80s, um, in the late 80s, yeah. And so you, you, so you were sort of involved in crime for all them years as well? Yeah, petty crime. Petty crime always kind of grows, grows into not petty crime at some stage. Yeah. Unless you learn your lesson. So uh, where did that sort of escalate to? So um, so from from that times, then um, then I kind of met a couple of people. We used to go drinking in a pub called the Dickens in South End, and uh, this would have been uh, eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety, um, and there was kind of the big the big faces that used to drink in there as well. And, uh, and there was a couple of people that took heroin. And, uh, so I was knocking about with these people. We were just doing cocaine and going out drinking. Um, and, and then the rave scene kind of come up in the night in 1989. And, uh, um, I met some people who were taking heroin, but I never was interested in taking it. I never was interested. I used to hate, the people that used to deal it. I used to know the people that used to come up and give my friend heroin. And uh, I really, really absolutely was dead against it. And uh, and then um, during the rave scene, when we was going out raving and taking ecstasy and doing a bit of cocaine, um, there was, I remember one day sitting in the back of a car outside of a pub and uh, we was all in. We'd been up all night and uh, my friend said, I said, I'll oh, give us a bit of that. Let me have a couple of lines of heroin to come down on. And uh, and that was it. And in my mind, because I still am not educated, I don't understand what addiction's all about, I still had this thing in my mind that people chose to end up like they ended up. I was smoking heroin to come down off of the ecstasy, not to become a junkie. I was just fo uh, smoking it to come down off the ecstasy. I never once ever dreamt or thought that I'd end up um, becoming a heroin addict, becoming a low bottom heroin addict. I thought that I had. I thought that I was involved in the decisions on what I'd done when I was taking heroin. But it ended up that I definitely wasn't involved in any decisions. So. Even for you, then up to them, that was sort of doing the ecstasy. That was sort of normal growing up. But then that, yeah, that car that doing, was life. doing the error in that for a bit of a curve born sent you down a different path. Yeah, definitely. And I think that everyone around me was doing it. No one, everyone was in the criminal lifestyle. Everyone was shoplifting their fences or drug dealing or. Um, by this time as well, I'd been out and done a couple of runs and bought some drugs over from Amsterdam and Ostend and earned a little, little bits of money doing that. And I think for, for me, it didn't just give me access to drugs. It also gave me an identity. I was so desperate to have an identity because I didn't feel like I had one. I felt important. Uh, I felt like I was something. 
Um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely done. It gave me status, I think. And uh, so, yeah, smoking heroin for for a little while, and then um, then I met my the father of my child. I met him in. Uh, I think he just got out of prison for doing uh, some sort of gun charge. Um, he was he was a little bit younger than me, and uh, we I met him, and basically met him in a crack house while we was taking heroin, and we just honestly we was like Bonnie and Clyde. We I just really loved him, really felt like I loved him. I found someone that loved me, or it felt like that he loved me, uh, for the first time ever. Yeah. And. So where was you living now, though? You 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 still in Bedsit Land in Southend, in a different place than York Road. Now we just moved into in and around Southend in in Bedsit. Um, we're just selling drugs in in Bedsit Land, um, selling ten pound bags of heroin, um, uh, moving little bits of weed and puff as well. At, one point that ended up fizzling out because we ended up in the class a scene so then uh, yeah me and darren got together we became an item and we got a small flat in westcliff and uh no in south end i think it was we ended up in westcliff when i was pregnant but um yeah we ended up in a flat selling drugs basically so how different was that relationship then like but like, like sort of going on the idea that you know you felt that like something was missing in your life and that, then you found someone that loved you for the first time i, I mean i guess that uh, must, must have had a massive made a massive difference to you the way that you felt about yourself massive what was difference going on. to me massive so, difference to me he's he, um gone so you weren't unhappy at that point, I guess that give you no, life a lift. Give my life a massive lift. Um, I think at the time, I could never see me being apart from him. I thought that was me and him together for the rest of our lives, like this Bonnie and Clyde ideal. Um, uh, I loved his mum very much. I still love his mum very much. Uh, she's been a, such a good woman in my life. Without her, I would never, you know, have had the opportunities that I've had with my daughter. Um, uh, she's really helped us along the way, and she, she, they, they were. Darren's family were a bit of stability to me. The first bit of stability that I'd experienced in a long time. Did they, and they all knew you were doing drugs and what you were doing. Well, I think I think that uh, I think she had an idea. I don't think she was clear from the day dot. But I think she might have, eventually she had an idea. I know that some of Darren's family uh, was upset that I got with Darren because I was, I think me and Darren met at the same, the time we met, we was both on the same uh, kind of exploring with uh, Class A's and we both met and then it just went, shoo. So it looked like you then led him astray. We both escalated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I spoke to one of his family members not so long ago, and she said, oh, I, I wish Darren had never met anyone that uses and, and so on and so on. And I felt like a little bit that she was having a little um, pop at me. And uh, I just let her talk, because I understand she's devastated. I get it, because, you know, he's not in a great way. And uh, yeah. 
I guess when you um, meet what someone I did say in, to her was that... when you meet someone in a crack house, it's not you led him there, was it? It was already happening, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And and the fact is that I met Darren when he got out of prison for a gun charge. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's what I said to her. I said the truth off. is that's that's when I met him. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's all right as well. I, I, the whole family is absolutely devastated. I think because of the current situation with him. Yeah. Well, maybe we can come on a little bit of that. So, so you you got a flat. You're happy. You then you got pregnant. Yeah, I ended up. I got, got pregnant and uh, um, then then it started. Then I had to go into a detox and um, I think I had to wait about two a month or something before I went into a detox. And uh, and I remember my dad saying to my dad came up to see me with Lindsay and he said, um, if I ever hear that you're taking heroin with that baby inside you, I'm going to make sure you never get to keep it. So although my dad had his unwell ways, there was still bits of good in him. You know, mm. I, I, when I look at my dad, I don't see everything negative. There was lots of good, caring things about him. And, uh, yeah, so I, ha so I went and had this... I was pregnant. We were living in South Church Road, at the time, and uh, we was uh, getting up to criminal activities, shoplifting, selling drugs, and then uh, I went. I had to go and have a detox, um, obviously because I was pregnant, which was horrific. And I think that time that I was pregnant, because there was no recovery there, no one ever said to me rehab or go to a meeting or, or you know, I, I never remember that being offered to me and uh so that during that period of me being pregnant and not using it i think it would have been better personally if i'd have used through the pregnancy because i was so distressed i was i remember kicking doors down and people using in my flat my like yeah the, the situation was horrific i was so distressed all i wanted so, to do oh, was so you use. just got like a, a, a you wasn't in a detox center you just got a a couple of like detox in the in the local Rochford hospital. Just like a week or two. I think it's about two, three weeks or something. Oh, and then you're at home doing nothing. It was horrific. Yeah. Nothing. Just go driving. My, honestly, it drove me insane. I, I can honestly say that was a, one of the worst periods of my life because all the, the I had had no treatment. No. The drugs have been taken away. I'm left with myself, and all I want to do is use. And uh, uh, all, all the people around me were still using. Uh, and that's even that pregnancy is very hazy to me as well. It, mm. I'm sure I would have got a little bit of a boot in a couple of times during that pregnancy, but um, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember. Jodie was born um, without a habit, so that was. Uh, that was good, but I can't, I can't say that the distress that I was experiencing, experiencing would have been any good for her at all. Yeah. I, I should imagine that some of the anxiety and and so on that she suffers from now is a lot to do with that. Was you kind of happy to be pregnant apart from that? I mean, was that sort of part of your life plan to have children? I think that, I think that I wanted. 
that deep down in my subconscious, but I just didn't. There was no plan. There was no, was plan. no plan. Definitely like, not a plan. Get pregnant. It's going to fix everything. You're going to stop drinking and live happily ever no. after. No. No stop, plan. Stop we didn't want to stop. I didn't even think about stopping at that point. Absolutely not. And it wasn't just the drug taking. It was also the lifestyle that I was leading. Because everything was going well for us at the time. We had money. We were selling lots of bits of drugs. And uh, the criminal the criminality was bringing us in. We was having a good life, or so we thought. Mm. And I was really in love. I really loved him. How long after yes. you give birth? Sad existence, really. How long after you give birth do you think you was back using again? I was using as soon as my waters broke. Yeah. As soon as my, I remember sitting with uh, Jody's dad in my front room. In the front room, we was living in Westcliff at the time, and uh, we got lots of lovely little, like Darren's mum really treated us. She was so good to us. Uh, and she, I think she was so excited for Darren's uh, daughter to be born. And uh, as soon as um, the waters broke, I... I had some heroin in my hand, literally. Yeah. I couldn't wait to use. I couldn't wait yet. And when I went to give birth, when I was in the hospital, there was me, Darren, and uh, his mum. And uh, I just started really crying and saying, oh, I've just taken some heroin. I just started breaking down. Then the reality started to... I could feel some reality and some emotion. And uh, I just really started crying because I'd used and I was trying to give birth. It was terrible. Yeah. It was horrific. So now you've got all that going on and a baby. All that going on and a baby. And, and I remember... Uh, um, I remember my dad coming up the hospital and uh, I was in the toilet smoking some gear and uh, I could hear him, Sonia, Sonia! And I was in the toilet and when I walked out of the toilet, he must have seen my eyes and... He must have just thought, he never said anything, but he must have been devastated. He must have been absolutely devastated. And uh, But say, saying that about the drugs, and it's all I could think about, when Jodie was actually born, honestly, it was the most, I'll never forget it, it was the most precious time. And I, and I felt my heart open up. I loved her so much, but I couldn't get clean for her. I loved her with all of my heart, every single fibre of her being. I absolutely adored her, but I just couldn't get clean for her. I, I didn't even know it was a choice. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even... Even when I started using, when the waters broke, I'd never thought that there was a choice that I could get stay clean or... I, there was there wasn't even in the question. I just mm. wanted to use. I just... Yeah. Obsession to use was so high. Yeah, it's difficult with these podcasts, I think, because you could go on so much about every little area because there's so many relationships and things going on. But And mm. again, I think people that have been there can um, can understand the experience. I just don't think people that have uh, been to that place have got a clue how much is actually going mm. on in people's lives and how chaotic it is and... Mm. You know, because on the outside, everyone's desperately trying to look normal and everything's okay, trying to prop it all up. And so, where did it, what what kind of happened with Jodie? As you maybe we focus on that for a little bit, what happened to Jodie growing up? 
so Jodie stayed with us. Jodie, I had Jodie for the first two years, and uh, so we eventually ended up in a high-rise block in a in a place called Blackdown Flats in South End. And uh, my dad helped Darren do the place up. It was really nice. We had a lovely little flat, and uh, we were selling drugs from the flat. And um, Jodie was a tiny baby, and she had all the clothes that she wanted. And for for a time, everything was going good, apart from the fact that we was obviously taking heroin and crack. And uh, and then uh, when the crack kind of when the crack really hit the scene, nineteen eighty nine, ninety. Um, Jodie was born in ninety four, I think it was. We crack was well on its way by this time, and. Uh, so Jodie spent much of her time like knocking at the kitchen door, mummy, 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 and I'd have my foot against the door, stopping her from coming in. Uh, don't let her in here, don't let her in here, uh, while, while I'm smoking crack and, uh, and, and taking heroin. So Jodie's environment was totally hostile, people coming in to buy drugs. Um, she lived in a hostile environment, a loveless. Even though I loved her, I didn't have it didn't have the capacity to give her love, nurture her, give her time, uh, make sure she's fed, warm, you know. She she had the very, very basics for the first year or two. But when she went, the police came through our door regularly. Um, the police came through our door, drug bust. The, I remember Hazel Harley, she was the head of the drug squad. She was so lovely. She was such a really supportive, nice woman. Uh, she she came through our door regularly, and uh, she knew Jodie on first name terms. And it was just devastating. Must have been devastating for Jodie, not knowing what's going on. Like her security's been threatened, her emotional and her her, her kind of home security's been threatened. And uh, it looks like these police are threatening, but really it's us that are putting it a threat. So that, uh, so that kind of for the first couple of years, and then uh, me and Darren, obviously, because the crack had well hit us by then, um, and uh, we started arguing. Darren was one of the sorts of people that he, he'd get a parcel of crack, and he could sell three quarters of it, uh, or half of it, get the money back, and then we'd have the rest to smoke. I, I wasn't like that. I. I couldn't even comprehend putting crack away, thinking that you've got to sell it to get the money back. I just couldn't understand that. I just wanted to smoke crack all night. So even though he was definitely, he's a definitely an addict, I was absolutely horrific. I couldn't, I'd rather go and search the yellow pages and walk up the streets and look for crack than go to sleep. Mm. I, I was just absolutely crack crazed and uh, we ended up arguing and fighting uh, and I think that I'd, I just couldn't bear him near me. And it wasn't anything to do with him physically. It was just how, where the crack had got me at that point. And, uh, so we started arguing and fighting. Then one night, um, Darren's mum and my dad, I, I think I phoned my dad up and said, come and get me. I can't bear it anymore. And, uh, and Darren's mum and my dad came round and, uh, um, they come and got me. I think Darren, no, Darren went to his mum's and uh, me and Jodie stayed there and I was going to try and get clean. He was going to try and get clean. 
I don't know how we was going to do that because there was no help, no support. We didn't have anyone to help us, no kind of professionals or no meetings. I didn't know any of anything. And then um, I think Darren, Darren at that point, he went off with someone else. Uh, that might have been already brewing by one of the girls that was coming around to buy drugs um, from us, um, someone that I knew. That kind of relationship might have already been brewing from her coming round. Who knows? It's not really, that's not really important for me. But Darren at this point had gone. I stayed at home trying to get clean, didn't have an idea of what getting clean meant. I didn't have an idea of recovery, didn't know anything about rehab, didn't know anything about getting support, didn't have a clue about anything. Hence, needless to say, that I ended up using still and and uh and and so did darren uh and then the journey my life totally from that moment for the next few years my life went downhill so that must have been 1994 96 uh so i carried on using for another eight years and it was it went to from to pitiful pitiful demoralization it went from bad to worse very very quickly uh, I lost my flat. I, I went to prison at one point. Oh, I Jody lost was my gone flat. By Someone then. had done a house. Jody was at an end by then. Yeah, social services said that I had, thankfully Lindsay stood up and uh, went to see my probation officer one day when she see a, a one mil needle in my in my place when she come to get her. Uh, she obviously then could see that I'd started injecting. Um, and Jody, Lindsay thankfully went to speak to my probation officer. My probation officer obviously made the safeguarding referral. And uh, thankfully, and so Lindsay, Jody had to go with Lindsay when she was two years old. We had all the social services meetings. And then the agreement took place that she was going to go to Lindsay's on this certain day. And this, honestly, this is horrific for me. So I came out of this meeting. It's been agreed the date that Jody's going to Lindsay's. And I remember standing outside this meeting, me, Lindsay, and a social worker, and I was I was like lost. And I said to the social worker, "So what's going to happen now then?" And this is all that she had for me. Were you either going to go one way or the other? That was it. That was all I remember her having. I don't remember ever being supported into rehab, recovery, drug service. I don't remember any of it. But then from that from that moment on, my life went downward. It went on a downward spiral, very, ways, very painful. What, what was happening to you? So then I had the freedom, even though I put Jodie in some very dangerous situations um, uh, when she was with me, uh, now that she was gone, there was I had nothing to worry about. I lost my flat a few years later. Uh, for numerous reasons, for I think for the drugs and that that we were selling there, and I just couldn't keep it up. I just couldn't keep it up. Didn't know about paying bills. I didn't know. I just didn't know how to function in normal life at this point. Um, my flat, they 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 boarded my flat up, and then I became homeless again. But that from that period on, it was a very. I can't remember much of it. It was a haze. I remember sleeping in crack houses, uh, spent a lot of time in prison, in and out of prison. Um, I remember that um, 
shoplifting, I'd worn all them resources, they were all finished because I was so well known to the police. All the shoplifting squad knew me uh, by first name terms. I'd been barred out of Southend High Street. Um, I wasn't allowed in any road in Southend High Street or any road adjacent. So the, the criminal stuff was, uh, all the plan Bs were being cut off. So I ended up on uh, in the red light area in South End and started doing that for a little bit of time. But at this time, my mental health and my physical health were absolutely terrible. Um, uh, it, it was a real, it was a real kind of time in my life where I guess I needed an intervention. I needed a family intervention well, to come and get me been, to stay. How many times you've been in jail up to that point? So up, I've been to jail, I think, 13 or 14 times altogether. So you had a lot of interventions, um, in, but more trying to sort of punish yeah. you, was it, for... Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the prison officers that I kind of got familiar with, they always, I always got on with them and they all do, always say, oh, Sonia's back again. Like, oh, what are you doing? Like, and I just didn't have any answers for them. I didn't have, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't have any, I've kind of cut off any help that I possibly potentially could have had by a lot of my friends, um, that weren't addicts because of my behavior was literally despicable uh towards the end uh i became all of that stuff about being unloved i can't i started to do that to myself as you said yeah well, that, um, again, what's, uh, i made it impossible to love me again because we talk about what go all that that's all a lot of that external stuff what was it like inside you mm. on a daily basis at that time you know, what were you dealing with as a person? Survival, definitely midbrain. When when you talk about recovery in the frontal cortex and the midbrain, I was definitely living in the midbrain. It was just survival, survival of the fittest. It became like a dog eat dog world, literally in and out of prison, a dog eat dog world, literally. All I cared about was getting ten pound or twenty pound or fifty pound to get some white and brown so that I could survive the next day. Then you're willing to do that absolutely, was all it of. absolutely anything. Absolutely anything. To get absolutely, it. I literally sold my soul, yeah, for heroin and crap to yeah. survive. And so, what kind of what? I mean, look, we could go on forever talking about you know where that took you and what you experienced and the the um, the darkness of all that addiction. Because again, I mean that's completely damaging in itself you know even if you're damaged before you started that journey being on that journey is mostly demoralizing and, and destroys you like you say you're pretty much like you're selling mm. your soul it feels like but but your mind's mm. under incredible pressure and being really bent out of shape and um, being yeah. separated completely from society even in prison I think you know, I think when you f consider this problem, prison's probably about the worst place you could possibly put somebody with that problem. Um, mm. And so, so what brought all that to an end? So, honestly, so thankfully at the end, um, I couldn't have got clean of my own resources. I'm not, 
I'm not one of them people that someone gives you the CA helpline or the NA helpline number and you phone it up and you say, go, come and meet me outside the meeting and let's go to a meeting. I could never have done that. By the time I got arrested at the end with the, for the four street robberies in 2004, all my teeth were gone. I was six stone. I had track marks all up my necks, all bruises, infotigo spread all around my face. I had nothing and no one. And I'd helped create that. My addiction had helped create that. And uh, and I ended up in, uh, uh, ended up getting the four years for the street robberies, which was the best intervention that someone like me could have ever had. It took me out of that life and it put me into a safe, a safer space. And I ended up in one of the most wonderful prisons that you could ever, ever dream about ending up in. I ended up in HM Prison Downview, where thankfully the majority of the pr prison officers were very caring, re really caring and cared about people. And uh, my 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 drug worker was that, in the sorry, prison... Sorry, was that prison designed to be was, like that, Son? Um, I don't think so. I don't. It, it was one of the first prisons to have the RAPT in there, but RAPT was no longer in there when I went there. Was that like a change? Uh, the twelve in, step and the RAPT stuff. Was that like a change in the prison system at that point? Then do you think that there was a bit more help or a bit more awareness? Or well, I think it's because I was doing the long sentence. All the other sentences that I'd ever done were very in and out. Hmm. So it gave, honestly, I felt glad to be able to get in there get on my script, get off my script and settle down and not think of, because all, all the other sentences that had been go in, get on your methadone, come off the methadone in nine days and then just feel like that for nine days or so many weeks and then you're out again. So it was just really the short prison sentences are about getting in, detoxed, fatten up and look forward to getting out again. It's kind of making you worse, and, um, I guess that is, isn't it? Terrible, yeah. yeah. So then you'd get you you you'd get your kind of money, uh, your discharge grant at the end of it, and you're already planning to get free into uh, up King's Cross or wherever was the closest place, get free white and two brown. You that was already being planned, but th this time I had a chance to settle. I had a chance to sit still and think about what had gone on, and. Uh, Thankfully, Lindsay brought Jodie up to see me a few times, uh, uh, which were very difficult visits. She was only 13 at the time, and I was... I, I can't remember how old, how old I... I must have been 36 at the time. So they were very difficult to me, because I started coming to terms with the damage that I'd caused myself, and for Jodie, and for everyone around me. I started coming to terms with it. I think it took my brother about... My brother came up. No, my brother sent me some clothes and uh, a couple of um, bits of money while I was in there. And it took him time to kind of come round and defrost from the poison that I'd kind of spread along to everyone. But I think that the prison sentence gave me time to sit and reflect. My key worker, my drug worker in the prison, she was an Eleanor member. Her two sons were drug addicts. And she could see something in me which I couldn't see in myself. And what she could see, I think, that there was room to move because I was in... I was kind of hit my bottom and I was in such a 
there was nowhere else for me to go. I'd come to the end of myself. And, and you uh, wanted to change them I think as well, she could see so... Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what it meant. Didn't no. know what change meant. I didn't know what recovery even uh, consisted of. But I was willing to go and do it. So she was the one that put me forward to go into rehab. And the funny thing was, was I'd never had any experience with 12-step before. I never... I didn't know anyone that had got clean through 12-step, but when we were going through the books, looking at all the different rehabs, honestly, this this has come from nowhere, literally. Uh, I was looking at all the different rehabs in the book, and I said, I'll go anywhere apart from 12-step. I ain't doing that. And then I, I, I ended up going to this um, therapeutic environment rehab. I think it was just outside Watford. And uh, I went there and had an assessment, and I got accepted into this rehab. And uh, it ended up when Southend Borough Council got in contact with them uh, and they found out the prices for this rehab, Southend Borough Council rejected it. They said, we can't pay that. We've got another rehab for you. And uh, it ended up being a 12-step one. The only one that they could afford was this 12-step one. So I ended up there anyway. And uh, that's where I first started getting... um, an idea of what 12 step what 12 steps was what it meant <clears throat> and when i first walked in there everyone said yeah we're sick people we're sick people uh we're just still getting better and i and i honestly thought in my head is like not me i there's nothing wrong with me i just need to stop taking heroin i thought that someone was going to literally switch a switch or give me this uh, one liner that's going to help me stop taking heroin i never had any clue of what was wrong with me. I didn't understand about the obsessive nature of our minds. I didn't understand anything about the allergic reaction that no, we have to just, alcohol. You're just drugs. kind of getting on the I bridge didn't... now, aren't you? I mean, and it is amazing, isn't it? How little we know about that, but how powerful yeah. them judgments are. I don't want it. I don't, I ain't doing it. Yeah. But really know nothing about it, but, but then you start learning. I mean, what did it feel like for you learning that stuff? Because I, I guess that must be, a, if you've not really sort of come across it, what was it like being in group therapy and that kind of thing? So, again, definitely midbrain. I My brain is underdeveloped. Not only has it, it de- not only didn't it develop over the years of me growing up through my teens and then my early 20s, um, not only didn't it develop, I'd gone backwards. Mm. I'd abused myself so much with alcohol, drugs and the lifestyle and a lack of love, um, healthy love. I think my brain is definitely, um, it was definitely underdeveloped. So being in the environment of people that are trying to care for me and in the group therapy it was horrific. <laughs> I can honestly say it felt horrific in the group therapy trying to identify how I felt. I, I just, I was so void, so void of anything I felt, any, I didn't even know. All I thought about really was drugs and boys. That was all I had to think about Which is kind when of I was like first getting clean. Both, both of your uh, addictions really, weren't it? Yeah, yeah definitely. I think... Um, I just didn't have it. Def- midbrain. All I could, when I think about my state at that point, definitely midbrain. There was no healthy thought processes. There was no 
ability to kind of risk assess, look to the future, risk assess, no ability to take care of myself, no ability to do anything healthy. I didn't have the brain capacity to do anything healthy or functioning. Everything was just real midbrain stuff to feel good for the next 30 seconds, feel good for the next 30 seconds in whatever form that was. It was a painful place and I never want to be a newcomer again. <laughs> Ever want to be a newcomer again. And, and so what happened there then? So I think that uh, I did, after I came out, went to the rehab, I didn't last in the rehab very long, as you can imagine, with the midbrain uh, behaviour. I couldn't behave myself. I couldn't, I just couldn't. I just couldn't settle. I just couldn't, my brain just couldn't take it. It was shocking for me. And uh, um, I did, after I left the prison, was in that rehab, I did use, did use a couple of times. Um, I did use a couple of times after coming out the um, at prison. I come out in the February, and um, February 2006, and I used... I got three months clear. I ended up in Watford in, in the sober living houses with you and and the crew there in Watford. And um, um, I used a couple of, two or three times. I got three months clean, then I'd explode, then I'd get three months clean again, uh, and then I'd explode again. But the, my process was is that I never stopped going to meetings. I never stopped trying. I knew that this was the last house on the block for me. And from from you and all the guys there, I remember Sarah, Christine, Lisa Donald, all the guys, Hilda, I remember all the guys there in Watford, they became my family. They kind of loved me and kind of nurtured me back into life again. And uh, I, I kind of started to experience stuff that I hadn't experienced probably all my life or for a long time anyway in my life. And... Uh, uh, I, I remember the last time I used in, in October 2006, I remember, I kind of remember um, hitting my bottom. And hitting my bottom, my bottom was nothing to do with anything external because my life at that point was the best it's ever been. Physically, externally, my life was the best it's ever been, but it became so painful how I felt inside that, I know it's corny, but a lot of people say that something snapped inside of me, and I and I haven't thought about using and drinking since then. I haven't thought about using and drinking for sixteen years, seventeen years, nearly. But what what was your what would you how would you if you could go back to then how would you describe your mental condition like your mental health what what. How would you describe your mental health at that point, even though you're... If, sort of... I'd had a, if, I'd have had the, if I'd have had the capacity at that point to articulate how I felt, I could have gone to the doctors, I'm sure, and been diagnosed with ADHD, split personality disorder, bipolar. I definitely, honestly, the my mental health... Someone would walk by me in a meeting and they'd say, oh, hi, Sonia, how are you doing? And I honestly used to take that as a personal attack. And I'd want to ask them how I was doing. I didn't have any idea how I felt. I didn't, I felt so void of myself. And I was so self-conscious and so raw, everything was so raw. 
I literally felt schizophrenic. The anxiety, the how I felt in my mind, all, all the ADHDs, the bipolar, split personality disorder, I would have been, I could have been diagnosed with all of it. Yeah, see, that's the bit I kind of wanted, wanted to focus on with this idea of the bridge mm. because, you know, I think it's mm. easy for people, I don't know whether they do, but I think they kind of hope that you kind of come out of all of that craziness with your brain completely smashed to pieces and then, you know, then you have all these emotional difficulties, which, you know, you definitely have. Um, but then you need kind of remedicating to deal with all of them emotional issues that, you know, that even though it was quite difficult, it's still doable, that you still made it through. Um, using all of the tools and the support and the people around you and again you know thinking of how damaged that your brain was and how you know even like saying that how capable of you were you of having relationships then how capable uh, of you were going and getting that's all a job? I wanted absolutely I, I remember saying to you once I remember saying I don't want to work in Asda's no, I ain't I get working not for less than or... a tenner an hour. I ain't getting up. <laughs> and then I remember you saying to me, "They they wouldn't have you. <laughs> they wouldn't have you." And that, but that was really a lesson for me. When some little things that you've said along the years, it's really kind of pierced into my heart. And I thought, "Oh my God, he's right. Like I'm a, I'm unemployable. I was unemployable." Uh, you know, for the first couple of years of my recovery. I, I, would, I definitely, I didn't, uh, although I wanted to work, I was rebellious. I didn't like being told what to do. I couldn't hear. I couldn't listen. I couldn't take direction. Uh, so it was very, it would have been very difficult to employ me. But thankfully, I went down there. I'd done a, quite a lot of voluntary work in my early years. And uh, I, I learned a lot kind of through that process. Thanks, I think Hebron House, there was another rehab that you put me in touch with. I went and done some, um, A. I think it was, I went and done some stuff there. I volunteered for the sober living houses at first. So, yeah, I think that, that all, all that stuff I've done in my very early recovery. I remember doing um, some college courses. Um, that All that kind of led in the first couple of years that put me in good stead to understanding about employment, what it means to be to be able to work, to be able to listen to people, to be able to take direction. If someone was telling me what to do, honestly, I just want to rebel against it, or I don't like being told what to do, I just want to do it my Why are you telling me what to do? That's what I always used to say. I, again, it felt like a personal attack. Yeah. Everything uh, uh, felt like a personal attack. So how much support do you think it takes for someone like you to recover? Well, I think I think that. I mean, when I say like I you, I mean you were you were pretty low bottom. You know, you'd been proper down to the bottom of the barrel. I don't know if it could got any worse. I don't know if you could find anybody worse than where you got to, the way you were living your life, the damage to you. Um, you know, all of the uh, abuses and 
you know, whether it be yourself or other people and the drugs, you know, I don't think you could have been more broken as a person. Uh, just trying to, you know, again, just that, that idea of the bridge, it's like, you know, what you find on there and, and you know, what do you think any, if, if you do, if you didn't get them, the massive amount of support uh, do you think there'd be any chance for you? Absolutely no chance whatsoever. I think that, you know, whenever I talk to people about my journey, I think that the most important thing for me was having some mature 12-steppers, mature God-centered 12-steppers around me um, who were able to love me through my process and also from my brokenness, even though I rebelled and it was very difficult for me, I've learned to trust you guys and I kind of gave you, it's an unspoken thing really, I've given you permission to to challenge me. Even though I didn't like it at times, it was kind of an, un, it was kind of a bond that I'd made with you and a, and a few others that um, that permission was there and I think that I found it difficult and I think I made life difficult probably for you and and, and other people as well because it, it wasn't nice, it wasn't easy being around me I guess in the early in the early days not all the time but I guess at times only the first but 10 it, years it, it... you, got, you <laughs> softened up about after 10 years <laughs> I, I literally I think I think that's about I'm not even I joking felt... I think people noticed didn't it that mm. I think, yeah. I mean, uh, 10 years, you just seemed to soften all of a sudden and then a real change yeah. started to happen where you weren't so defensive mm -hmm. or so mm -hmm. uh, withdrawn. I mean, because at the beginning you were so withdrawn, you used to literally like somebody switch you off. You'd just go completely mm -hmm. withdrawn, shut down, shut your eyes and turn off. And it, you'd have to wait for you yeah, to sort yeah. of switch back on again. It's like you're like a computer crashing, <laughs> and then it had to be rebooted, and it was, was literally. You, I'd have to say sometimes, Son, you can you hear me? Move your finger, and you just wiggle your finger, and that's about all. So it's coming from, from there, and then you know, being incredibly defensive, because again, I think it's that that it's that brain, isn't it? It's just that brain is so mm -hmm. damaged. But but again, I think the miracle of it is seeing that. But even having all of them mental and emotional issues are wrapped around that the person that you are inside, but that person still managed to navigate away through all of that, uh, which again is pretty painful. There's a lot of pain in there in recovery. There's a lot of upset, a lot of stress, a lot of strain, mm. a lot of emotional traumas and difficulties and you know some some uh, some terrible realities to face you know about yourself we see emotional development and the brain development i think yeah because i see one thing people don't like is looking at themselves and i think you know just talking about today is really mm -hmm. saying that but in when you're that bad you have to look at yourself and it's like the last mm -hmm. thing anyone wants to do especially when you've got so much difficulty, so much trauma, so much hurt, 
you know, so much guilt, so much shame um, that it, it, it seems it takes that level of brokenness to be, you know, we call it the gift of desperation in recovery that we become so desperate yeah. that we're willing to look at ourselves and 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 mm -hmm. walk with that person which is us through all of the pain, through all of the difficulty, through all of the fears, all of the anxieties. I mean, even for myself, it's like, you know, being in friendships when there's arguments or pressures or challenging. I mean, it can almost be like I'd rather kill myself than challenge someone. That's when you've got that feeling, that mm -hmm. that, that that desire to uh, to run away from the situation or myself can be like literally just overwhelming and just watching watching the people you know like yourself and I think this is where the program's so important isn't it that it just gives you the tools and like you said the people around you that, that understand the tools I think that's an important part isn't it because it's like look I can't do this for you but if you listen and I could tell you the steps to take. They call it the 12 steps, but that converts into very real life um, processes. And it's like saying, look, it's, I can't promise it's going to be easy. In actual fact, I can promise you it ain't going to be easy. But if you take these steps and take the direction that we're offering to you, you can not only walk through that, but you can actually grow through that. Mm. And, um... Definitely. When when I think about where my life is now, Lester, like uh, can, can, we're taking into consideration the very underdeveloped, close to deaf human being in 2004 when I went to prison, compared to me now. Um, I think that it, it's nothing short of a miracle. Honestly, like I'm now I'm back in Southend now living in a flat in one of my daughter's flats my, sorry my daughter's flat and um and my relationship with her is literally we were estranged for many years because when she was with her nan and uh since i've been she lived with me in suffolk for seven years and then she came back here and then i ended up coming back here so my relationship with her is that so i couldn't i just couldn't um i couldn't hope it's a life beyond my wildest dreams. So my relationship with her now is beyond what I'd ever dreamt. I never, ever thought that I'd be where I'm at with her today. Like, uh, I just feel, I mean, we've both got our issues. I think we're a lot better than what we were. And we've definitely got our issues. I mean, she's got two addict parents. One's in recovery, one's not. You know, I've got an absent mother. My mum's passed away. I've got a dad that's not very well. So we've definitely got both got our issues, but we make the best of it. You know, with what we've got, and uh, I, I, I'm so proud of her. So so proud of her for how far she's come, and how graciously she forgave me and let me back into her life again. She did punish you for a while. Where really she had the right she to never let me back. She, she punished you for a bit. <laughs> But you let her do well, that. I, I was think, it, I think it? that. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think that she when worked, you kind of think about the around. years that I was absent in her life, 
Yeah, definitely. But I think that's a good thing about she's the programme as well, isn't it? She's an amazing kid. That, that she went through a mm. relationship with you and you stuck in there with her as well mm-hmm. and worked through it. But that that's not an overnight yeah. matter either, is it? That's an ongoing... No, definitely. I remember, remember making my first amends to her and, you know, when you go through your first kind of amends and I, I remember it took her 12 years of me being clean for her to tell me about myself. And it was nothing about me in active addiction. It was about me in recovery. Mm. I guess the hurt would have been springboarded from the neglect, but it was everything to do with me in recovery. And because um, most of it was true, <laughs> if you ever want your inventory taken, take one, get one of your family members to do it. So most of it was true. And I just, I, I just honoured her. Yeah, you're right. I think children that have been abandoned need to be listened to, need to be heard, and uh, and their feelings need to be acknowledged. Um, Don't tell them that they're feeling it wrong, or because that's what that was my first initial response. I just wanted to say, no, it's not. But I learned to respond rather than to react, and just let her express how she felt and honour it, and that was very important for her. But also that took me that took me twelve years to be able to do that. Mm. That yeah. took her twelve years to be able to have the courage to say it, and me for me to be able to respond like that. Yeah. Because I'm so sensitive and such a fragile human being. Yeah, well, I guess there's a lot of guilt as well, isn't there? If, when you, uh, I find that's always a bit of difficult with mothers that they that they they really struggle to get past the guilt. They don't like you there. They don't want to own mm-hmm. it. They often want to sort of try and justify why they behave that way rather than acknowledging from their child, look, you, this, that was right. It was wrong. And you were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sorry for how much mm-hmm. damage it did to you. And what can we do to re- repair it now? It's nice to be here. But again, even that's mm. a gift to no, get to that place. No, definitely. I think it's a Mm-hmm. Not, I think that it's very difficult for very difficult for mothers to be able to face what they've done to their children, mm-hmm. the neglect and the um, um, all the stuff that goes hand in hand. You you know I, I, you can't be a crack and heroin lover and uh, have the capacity to bring up your children no. in a healthy manner. I don't believe. No, and, and, you, well, can't, and anyway. you can't get rid of guilt unless you're willing to uh, own it, accept that you've done wrong, and, yeah. and ask mm-hmm. for forgiveness, and you know make the make the amends. It's what we learn, isn't it? There's, yeah, mm-hmm. If you're not people not willing to do that, they they get trapped with the guilt. Mm-hmm. I think. That's, yeah, definitely. It's I... just an important thing, I think, for if people to know. If I could go back and that. change it, it'd be lovely, but it. It's just not something that can be changed. It is it. The past is the past, and now the present in the, is the present, and the future hopefully is going to bring lovely, wonderful things for us, which yeah. it already has been. Yeah, because again, just even sort of Jody coming back in your life to that degree again, like you say, that's kind of a twelve-year journey just there, isn't it? Just getting to that point. Yeah, 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 of, yeah. And mm. it couldn't have happened any quicker than that. Because probably neither of no, you were able not. 
So I always find this about, I want to do a podcast on forgiveness, because the more I learn about forgiveness, it's, it's not just something you just say, and then all of a sudden everything's great. It's, you know, like uh, we do that podcast about the one shoe that, you know, you can forgive people, mm. but it's still being, forgiving someone doesn't stop them being dysfunctional forgiving them doesn't yeah, stop yeah. you being dysfunctional but it is kind of like the doorway yeah. that you can walk through to start working on developing and that can take time you know I often mm. think of like look it's all right if someone you know if someone stabs you with a knife and then pulls the knife out i can go oh I forgive you but excuse me for being a little bit sensitive towards you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the fact I've got a gaping wound that needs healing. Um, you know, so I, I think forgiveness is something that really needs a lot more conversation. Again, I've, I realise that I've had to learn. Some people in my life, it's just not been a one-time deal. It's a bit of an ongoing mm. process that I've had to work at. Especially mm. with them childhood stuff, because that seems, you know, it seems very hard to heal from childhood wounds. Yeah. Even as an adult. Can you imagine? Can you imagine as a as a child, or when you're growing up, and thinking, right, I'm going to start. You just, it just wouldn't happen, you know. When you think about the catastrophic damage that you cause through addiction uh, with having children. Like no one in their right minds, no one in their right minds would think about. No one in their right minds would think about. Um, start taking drugs, can't stop taking drugs, have children, damage their lives. They go into care or to the care of the parents or social services care. No one ever thinks makes a plan to do that. No, it's kind of it's, like the opposite. It's, it's like the opposite yeah. plan that anyone would make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it has such catastrophic, lifelong effects on us. Yeah. Well, I think we're uh, we're coming to the end of this podcast, but I think that I think it would be nice at some point to uh, to just talk about that relationship and all that you kind of went through and how it sort of played out because I think you've got a lot of great insight well you've kind of been successful in that journey you know and again it wasn't a quick journey so like being on that bridge which you still are I guess you're closer to what would be considered normal living but it's an ongoing ongoing journey but all of them different relationships um, I think they're important for people to talk about uh, to realise that look, you can still make it even if it's difficult. You can still make it if you if you fall off the bridge, you can get back on it at any time. But you are going to need a lot of support, and I think that's one of the things I kind of try and be an advocate, advocate, advocate. Is that the yeah. word in recovery? Yeah. Is that, that some people just need a hell of a lot of treatment, and they need a hell of a lot of support. And if they're not getting it, they're just not going to recover. And you can't be angry at them because mm. if you don't give them all the help they need, they just they can't do it for themselves. And again, like addiction, mm. you, 
You don't, you know, if you need X amount of insulin, if you're a diabetic, but you only get given a quarter of what you need, you're going to stay sick. And I think that's what needs to be understood about addiction. Is that, look, if you don't understand mm -hmm. this problem, you're not going to understand how much tr treatment and support some people need. And it doesn't have to be overly expensive, but it does need to be understood. Mm -hmm. And I think the more yeah, it gets yeah. understood, mm. because it is better in the community, because again, it's, but people need them very strong relationships and people need to, 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 to understand, look, you have to stay in these difficult relationships with these difficult people if they're going to change. Because I think all of us, mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the people that were there to help us, I don't think any of us would make it. And I think this is where sort of alcoholics and addicts become the real solution to this problem, not the professionals, because the professionals are not going to be there mm -hmm. as much as the fellowship. So as much as people may be against the 12 steps, they should really understand the benefits of that fellowship, which again, all the local services are trying to mimic. They're trying to create that fellowship and, you know, that... Um, you know that 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 where people can come together, but again, I think there's still something missing in that. I think it's just that understanding, and I know that, that you know you sort of work in them services now. Uh, and could you imagine? Would you think it? The, would you think the treatment now in them services in South End, if you was back where you was when you come to the end of your road? Do you think there'd be enough help in the services now? Do you think we've come a long way since since you were um, ready for the help? Um, I think that um, I think that probably not. <laughs> I think that because there's five of us that work in where I'm working at the moment and it's looking after over 40 people so I think I need personally. I um, I couldn't have done it. No, I, I needed more one-on-one, -on -one, um, probably connection, rather than. But I think the the model is the model is really similar to um, kind of the sober living houses in Watford, and I think it's a, a, a good thing from the majority of people that are going to be able to find help from uh, engaging with with them. But I think that um, I would have probably have got lost because there's probably too many clients and the, the staff ratio of clients is start, clients to staff is uh, too out of balance. So I would have got lost definitely. And, and, and in the other service you worked in before that, I think that was even more massive clients to start yeah, wasn't it? that was the yeah that was the local drug and alcohol services which um they've got the, the most loveliest people that work there they're really really caring and they're the nicest bunch of people that you could work with I couldn't fault them in any way but i think across the board there's a lack of understanding of addiction mm. so there's a lack of understanding of what to do about the problem but I think that their their hands are pretty tired up as well because if someone's saying that they don't want to get clean and they want to carry on taking methadone, they're they 
they're stuck really and then they just have to start risk managing rather than helping them get better then they have to start risk managing where that's where the naloxone comes in that's where the um uh, needle exchange comes in so yeah it's just a very different approach if someone's not wanting to get clean it's about the risk management mm. and if they do want to get clean is it possible um yes if they if they want to get clean they, they would i guess if they wanted to get clean because they speak a lot about the 12 step fellowships as well in there which is a wonderful wonderful thing they really encourage everyone to go to 12 step fellowships either aaca or na so i think that if someone wanted to get clean i know that there's two people at the moment in the new in the new place i'm working at there's two clients who are have been on a script that have come down and now totally off scripts and uh in the, in the 12-step fellowships and being supported by these lovely people that i work with so i think if you want it above all else and you're going to accept the help i think there you can do it yeah yeah i mean that's... when i compare myself if i compare myself to a lot of the people that are in there now you can't, I, I, I would have needed to have gone to rehab for a few months before I go to went to this place. This place would have been good if I'd have been to rehab for a few months first. Well, but it's I was South End now. I guess you so can go unwell. to their groups every day, and you can go to meeting every night, and probably some days yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and there'll be plenty of people. Yeah, there's me. There's, there's plenty of people there that'll be more than happy to give you guidance and support and. Yeah. Direction and NA fellowships massive and... in South End. AA is massive. CA is growing. So recovery's so there's growing. So there's isn't a it? huge fellowship. Yeah. yeah. There's a huge fellowship here, and they do a lot as well. They do a lot of activities and stuff as well. Yeah. No, that's good news, isn't it? Yeah. No, really good news. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll bring that to an end then. And uh, thank you very much for coming on again. I think we will have you back on again in the not-too-distant future to drill down on some of them areas. But uh, thanks for sharing, Sonia. Thanks for being open and honest. And uh, thank you very much.